why don't you grab a seat. Thank you, Johnny, for rescuing me there. Um, quick shout out to all the people who are doing so much stuff right now. Just serving our community, helping us to continue to be the family of God. Uh, there are all, so many ways that people are doing this. And I just want to, have we got the, um, the title screen for our new sermon series? Here it is, Heart and House. Don't you think that's really cool? Uh, it's, it's, it just look, I, I love it. Um, but Anna drew that. I think it's so impressive. And... Um, yeah, it's just so, so amazing. And I was like, don't do that. <laughs> Why do you do that? Um, I just think it's so amazing. There's so many people behind the scenes doing all kinds of things at the moment. People are out half 12 today until now and will be out until later um, helping us get ready to, for our new website that we're going to be launching soon. Just there's all kinds of things like that going on in the background. Um, people WhatsApping each other, or going on long walks with people who just need a little bit of help just now. All kinds of things. I mean, you could go on forever. So I just wanted to say thank you. Um, yeah, amazing. So such a privilege to be part of this family. It really is. All right, so we're beginning a new sermon series called Heart and House. It's in 1 and 2 Samuel. And uh, brace yourself because 1 and 2 Samuel are quite long. So we're going to be here for a while. We're going to go verse by verse. All the way through. Now, this is what I love going verse by verse. It's just where, it's where I'm at. I love it. Let's not miss out any of God's word. Let's go through his word together. Um, but it will take us a while. We'll have some breaks along the way because I recognize it might feel a little long at times. But I'm hoping you'll get as much joy out of it as I've already had just starting to prepare a little bit um, in these incredible stories. It joins Israel's story as ju the Judges period nears its end. Now, the Judges period began when Joshua died. Joshua was the one who led the people into the promised land. And since then, it had been a bit of a tough time. We joined the story in 1075 BC. Joshua had died in 1375 BC. For, so for a few hundred years, things have been tough. It's a, a season that we, we don't look upon very often uh, when we're talking about Israel. It was a, a time where people were disparate, they were separated from one another, the tribes were doing their own thing, and they weren't the fruitful nation that God had called them to be. They weren't set, a, set apart for, they had been set apart for God, but they weren't acting that way. It was chaotic, it was divided, it was painful. And leadership at the time was poor. There was a leadership void. The judges provided as kind of stopgap leaders, and some of them were bright sparks in a very dark period. But in the book of Judges, it kept repeating this phrase, in those days there was no king in Israel, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Tribes doing their own thing, and no unity in Israel. They desired a king, but their motives were all wrong. They wanted to be united under a king who was powerful like the Philistines, who could rise a, an army and go against 
their foes. They wanted uh, power in the region. It wasn't really about being united under God. They just wanted the military might of the Philistines. They wanted to be like their neighbors. They wanted to be like everyone else around them. They were taking the name of God and Israel and tagging it onto some system that they wanted to make themselves powerful, to make themselves accepted in the world, to be the people who were recognized as powerful in themselves instead of God himself being their king, God himself being the one who saves, God himself being the all-powerful one, God himself being the one who gets all the glory. They wanted the glory. They wanted in on it. And that's a problem we see repeated a lot. I wonder, how often do we do it in the church? This was supposed to be God's people set apart to be holy. Do we want to be just like the world? Look like the world? Be accepted by the world? Are we just trying to be relevant? Cool. And then tagging on church or Jesus? We're not supposed to be cool. We're supposed to be holy. We're supposed to be set apart for Jesus. It was epitomized at Shiloh, where the tabernacle was, just before Jerusalem was set up as the, the holy city. There was a worship problem. In the tabernacle, where the Ark of the Covenant was, and inside the Ark of the Covenant was the, the stone tablets, the Word of God, the Ten Commandments. But they weren't living out that Word. They weren't honoring the word of God. They weren't respecting and being fearful of the one true God who dwelt in the holy of holies. They weren't loving God with all their hearts. Eli's house, Eli was the most prominent priest at the time, and the judge. And his sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were serving in the tabernacle. They were sleeping around with the servants at the tabernacle, getting fat on sacrifices that people were making to God. Even the priests were doing whatever they wanted, whatever was right in their own eyes. Ah, heartbreaking. Think of that time that God had brought them into the promised land. Here it was, fruitful lives, lives with God. Here was this people set apart. They'd seen God do all these incredible miracles, parting the Red Sea and the Jordan, and entering into this glorious land. The 12 tribes united as one, fighting together for the glory of God. Now, this divided, out for themselves, just want to be like the rest of the world, desperate people. But with God, there is always hope. Where his people are unfaithful, he remains faithful. And as we begin 1 and 2 Samuel, something 
is about to change. Renewal in the nation is on the horizon. There is always another chance with God. This book's really one book, 1 and 2 Samuel. The theory is that 1 and 2 Samuel became two books when they couldn't get all get it, get it all in one parchment. And as we go through this book, there are captivating stories. These, these are classic Sunday school stories. These are the stories we love to learn when we were kids. But we need to avoid turning these stories into twee Sunday school lessons and missing the point that this is about God, Yahweh, and his heart for his people to dwell in his house forever, to be in his presence, and how in his compassion, he raises up a king and a family, a dynasty whose family line would bring a better king, the king of kings, an everlasting king, the king who would come and rescue the world. That's what 1 and 2 Samuel's about. We'll refer a lot to the words of Nathan that he prophesies over David in 2 Samuel 7 as we go through this. It says this, The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. This renewal of Israel was to be God's eternal blessing to the nations. And it begins with an unlikely woman named Hannah. It often does. Unlikely people. She was favored by her husband Elkanah shamed for not being able to have kids by the rest of society around her. Her story is about much more than that. So we're going to finish in 2.11, but here's how we're going to do it, okay? We're going to go through um, from verse, chapter 1, verse 1 in 1 Samuel, and then go through to 2.11, but we're going to just take a little chunk at a time. We'll talk about it, a little chunk at a time, talk about it, all right? So we're going to begin verses 1 through 8, and it says this. There was a certain man from Ramathaim, a Zophite from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jerohom, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuth, an Ephraimite. He had two wives. One was called Hannah and the other Panina. Panina had children, but Hannah had none. Year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh. Where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife, Penina, and all, to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, and the Lord had closed her womb. Because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her until she wept and would not eat. Her husband Elkanah would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you 
and ten sons. So this is part of God's pattern. You may have noticed this. He brings something from nothing, life from death. And here's another example. Hannah couldn't conceive, and in those days, as awful as it is in any day for someone not to be able to conceive, in these days it was brutal. Your standing in society, in a patriarchal society, was nothing if you couldn't conceive. It was, br- it was really rough. And it also meant that you had no security going forward. That was their reward, their sign of blessing from the gods in patriarchal societies. The one true God, Yahweh, brought a nation to bless the nations from old Sarah's barren womb. And even Rebecca and Rachel into the next generations, they were barren too for years until God brought life. And in those situations, it must have felt like God has forgotten his promise. Come on, Lord. You promised this to Abraham. We're going to be a blessing to the nations. We can't even count them like the stars in the sky or the sand on the beach. What's going on here? And then even God brought Samson, one of Israel's bright lights, during the period of Judges. And actually, he was probably still ministering while Eli was ministering in those early years. But out of the barren womb of Manoah's wife. That's, that was his beginning. Israel was God's favored one. Just like Hannah was Elkanah's favored one. Okay? And actually, this is what we're seeing here in Hannah is much more than just Hannah's situation. We're seeing Israel reflected in Hannah. These nations were powerful in the land. Like Penina was the one who looked like the blessing was coming to, even though she was unfaithful, even though she wasn't the favored one of Elkanah. So in the same way that Israel is supposed to be the favored one, supposed to be the one that God is with and for and blessing, didn't look like Israel was being blessed. And same was true of Hannah. Hannah, the favored one of Elkanah, but it didn't look like she was being blessed. It didn't look like she was being fruitful. How could she be favored and be barren? How could Israel be favored and be barren? And in Hannah, we have this picture of the spiritual situation of the true Israel. The remnant, God's remnant, those who trusted him. God's favor, his blessing was on them, but it didn't look like it. The people who stuck Israel and Yahweh onto their name, but really they just wanted some other system to save them. They wanted to be like everyone else. Those people were the ones that looked like they were being blessed. People like Penina, people like Hophni and Phinehas. They were abusing their position in the Lord's tabernacle. What's going on? And then the ultimate significance for barren women in the Bible is in Genesis 3.15. It's called the Proto-Evangelion, this kind of like first gospel that we see after the fall. First glimpse of the good news, 
how Jesus will come and take sin out of the world. It promises that the offspring of the woman will crush Satan's head. God will birth victory from the womb and ultimately the womb of the earth, the tomb. So what has happened to God's plan? Where is his holy nation? Where is the promise of salvation to come from the womb of the women? What's going on, Lord? How could this be? Isn't God to defeat sin and death through the seed of the woman? Didn't God set apart a nation to defeat the enemy and establish life as it was always meant to truly be? Come on, Lord, where are you? What's going on? Maybe you feel like that sometimes. Where are you, Lord? Where's your, where's your plan? What's being worked out here? Well, one day, God would bring this blessing through the womb. And Mary, conceived not by Joseph or Elkanah or any other man, but by the Holy Spirit himself. When God became man, was bruised for iniquities on the cross, crushing Satan's head, and raised from the womb of the earth on the third day, declaring his victory over sin and death and Satan. You see, God takes our nothing and renews everything. God takes us in our nothing and joins us to his mission to renew all things. So how do you assume, here's a question for you, how do you assume that God will renew Glasgow? How do you assume that God will renew Scotland? What will happen? What will it look like? What assumptions do you bring to the table? When you think about God coming and rescuing this nation. When we were down south, I heard about an incredible church leader. And uh, he was in, from this medium-sized suburban church. And um, I'd heard about how hundreds of people were coming to faith in this suburb. Heard about how... They were serving the poor in ways that I couldn't even imagine a church doing. I thought it was incredible. I heard about how they built this building that cost three million pounds, and it would not only serve the church, but serve the community beautifully. I heard about how the guy who was leading this church was seeing churches planted around the country and in Europe and in beyond into Asia. What's going on? It sounds amazing. And so there was an opportunity for me to go and meet this guy and be part of this meeting. And so I'm going, okay, great. I'm going to go there. And I had all these expectations for what this guy would be like. I thought, I want to be like this guy. And at the beginning of the meeting, some guy got up and sort of bumbled away. And I can't even remember what he said. Just like pretty awful, to be honest. It was not good up front. I'm thinking in my head, I'm thinking, could he not have raised up this guy? Could he not have raised up some other leaders to help him here? Like, guys, we've got them up front. And then the same person got up after the worship 
And it wasn't until about 10 minutes in, I realized this is the guy bumbling away who really was struggling to put sentences together. God had used this guy. And it turned out from his story that God had used this guy not because he had all the tools in the box that we would imagine a great leader to have, but because he trusted God, because he was humble before God. He believed that God could do anything. And it wasn't dependent upon him and his ability. It was dependent on the power of God. And I learned a real lesson that day because I had brought all my assumptions to what it would look like for nations to be changed. I don't think that you have to be like Barack Obama, a great orator. I don't think that you have to be like Steve Jobs, some incredible strategist, ability to think into the future. I think you just need to be humble and trust God. I think you just need to believe in his power trust that he can do it. And that's what we have here. And we'll see it again and again through these books. That God's selections of kings through Hannah's son, Samuel, in the next few chapters, we'll see that one hid in a store cupboard and then one was discounted by the family because they were too young and definitely not the kingly type, the royal type. And then God uses them to restore Israel. And that doesn't mean you don't grow in leadership. It doesn't mean that you don't work on things. It doesn't mean that God won't strengthen you. But it does mean that we need to continue always in humility, trusting to, in the power of God, being entirely and utterly reliant upon him for everything. Because if this, if this in any way is, is about us thinking that we just need to position the right people with the right kind of strengths in the right places, then we're missing the point. We need the power of God. We need humility, reliance upon him. All right, let me turn to verses 9 through 28. It says this, once they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now, Eli, the priest, was sitting on his chair by the doorpost of the Lord's house. In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly, and she made a vow saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life, and no razor will ever be used on his head. As she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart, and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk and said to her, how long are you going to stay drunk? Put away your wine. Not so, my Lord, Hannah replied. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I have been praying here out of great anguish and grief. Eli answered, go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. She said, may your servant find favor in your eyes. Then she went her way and ate something, and her face was no longer downcast. 
Early the next morning, they arose and worshipped before the Lord and then went back to their home at Ramah, Elkanah. Uh, Elkanah made love to his wife, Hannah, and the Lord remembered her. So in the course of time, Hannah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, saying, because I asked the Lord for him. When her husband Elkanah went up with all his family to offer the annual sacrifice to the Lord and to fulfill his vow, Hannah did not go. She said to her husband, after the boy is weaned, I will take him and present him before the Lord, and he will live there always. Do what seems best to you, her husband Elkanah told her. Stay here until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord make good his word. So the woman stayed at home and nursed her son until she had been weaned by him, until she had weaned him. After he was weaned, she took the boy, her, took the boy with her, young as he was, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour and a skin of wine, and brought him to the Lord at Shiloh. When the bull had been sacrificed, they brought the boy to Eli, and she said to him, pardon me, my Lord, as surely as you live, I am the woman who stood here beside you praying to the Lord. I prayed for this child, and the Lord has granted me what I asked of him. So now I give him to the Lord, for his whole life shall be given over to the Lord. And he worshipped the Lord there. God hears our cries. So God doesn't only see the broken, use the broken, take the humble and use them in power, but he first hears their cries. Now, one of the things I want us to notice is that she addresses God as Yahweh, all-powerful, sovereign God over all things, yet assumes that this all-powerful God will listen, will hear from her, this ordinary woman who in society has no standing. Have you written yourself off just because everybody else has? Don't. God most certainly hasn't. God has not written you off. Some of you really need to know that truth. You look around and you assume that what people think of you is who you are. No, you are who God says you are. That is where you find your identity. And she makes this prayer that is heartfelt. It says she poured herself out to the Lord. It represents, I think, in so many ways, every prayer, every cry, every genuine prayer of the needy to the all-powerful one. Prayer, in essence, is needy. Are you needy? Are you a needy person before God? If not, you don't get it because you need him in every way. We need to be increasingly needy, desperate in our prayers. We need more of that stuff, less of the British decorum. Shake off the emotionless Scot in you. The Glaswegian that says you're too tough to let your emotions out. Let them all out. We need to lay everything out before God. Now, Eli thought she was drunk. Now, I think there's both an issue here with Eli and with 
what's going on in Israel. Eli can't recognize a genuine prayer. And then he assumes that there's just another drunk here. Oh, here we go again. Another drunk in the tabernacle. But it also says something of Hannah's willingness to let her desperation show. When you pray, do you ever get so desperate that if somebody walked in on you, they'd be like, oh man, how many have they had? Are they all right? Notice Hannah accepts in faith. Nothing has actually changed after Eli says to go in peace. But in faith, she goes from despair. I can't eat with these people. I can't, I can't be around these people. I can't celebrate to a joyful, joyful person. Despair to joy, that is gospel hope. Still in prison in Sudan or North Korea for persecution of your faith, but full of joy because they've heard God's cry and can trust him to act. What desperate situation have you been in recently? What are you in now where you can say, I, I can act in faith, or I can, I can have this faith that totally changes my whole outlook on life because I know God will act. And that's what Samuel sounds like. No, I mean, I don't mean like what he sounds like. What I mean is his name sounds like. His name sounds like heard by God. So she names him that because she knows as an act of faith. I've been heard by God. He hears my cry. This desperate woman who seems to have no standing. And then remarkably, the change in her meant that she could make this vow. Nazarite vow, which was more than just a vow of what he would look like and how he would act. This was a vow that said, I'm going to give him away. This very son who she's been asking for and praying for, she feels like, yeah, I, I've got so much faith in my God that I can now give him away. Everything she wanted and would provide her security in her old age, gave him back to Yahweh, to the Lord. Now, this Nazarite vow for life was actually only made three times in the whole Bible. A Nazarite vow was made lots of times. But the Nazarite vow for life was only made three times. Some of you might know who those people are. Samson, Samuel, John the Baptist. Like John the Baptist, Samuel was to prepare the way for a king to come and save his people preparing the way in the wilderness, spiritual and otherwise, and calling people to repent for the kingdom of God is near. This marks a new era in Israel's history of a kingdom coming. But it actually really points forward to Jesus who will bring an everlasting kingdom. God is about to establish a kingdom through the stump of Jesse. That's what we're going to see. That's David's dad, Jesse. And from that family, 
a better, everlasting king, a king who will come and, com and bring complete victory and one who will establish God's kingdom forever, one we can rely upon, one who will never fail us. God hears our cries and he brings us the victory. He brings us the victory through his own suffering and death and resurrection. What trouble are you in at the moment? Trouble have you been in the past? What might come your way? What are you anxious about? Stand upon King Jesus because he has the victory. 1 Corinthians 15, 7 says, Thanks be to God, he gives us the victory, victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. He hears our cries. He hears you. He's heard you. And that is the essence of Hannah's song. Victory. He hears us and he gives us victory. A song that acts as a prelude to Mary's Magnificat. When the King of Kings is in her virgin womb. Okay, what I'd love us to do as I wrap up is read that out a few verses at a time and just I'm just going to say what each part of it represents and I love us to this week go away and read it just spend some time reading reading it reflecting on it uh, just close the door behind you if you can I know it's difficult if you've got family and stuff but just try and get even just half an hour to do that get a, close the door behind you open it up Read it through, reflect on it, okay? All right, so chapter two, verse one. I'm not gonna read the first few verses. It says, then Hannah prayed and said, my heart rejoices in the Lord and the Lord, my horn is lifted high. My mouth boasts over my enemies for I delight in your deliverance. There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. Do not keep talking so proudly or let your mouth speak such arrogance. Oh, come on, page. For the Lord is a God who knows, and by him deeds are weighed. So those first few verses are really personal to Hannah. This is about her vindication. This is about how she has been saved in her situation, how she has been heard. You see the my and the I, it's personal. God is a personal God who hears your personal prayers. He's interested in you personally. He's interested in every part of you. And so as you reflect on this this week, would you reflect on those first few verses and, and just recognize before God, you care about me. Me. Cares about you. And then read verses four through eight. And um, let me read them out. And then, uh, yeah, we'll have a think about those. So, the bows of the warrior are broken, but those who stumbled, uh, yeah, those who stumbled are armed with strength. Those who were full hire themselves out for food, but those who were hungry are hungry no more. She who was barren has borne seven children, but she who has had many sons pines away. The Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and raises up. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and he lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with the princes 
and makes them inherit a throne of honor. For the foundations of the earth are the Lord's. On them he has set the world. This was for Israel. This was a reminder of who they are and how they are being saved. This was a reminder to them that God has set them apart and that the judging of the people who are oppressing them will take place. God is a God of mercy and of judgment. He is coming to remove sin from the world and renew the whole place through Christ, the King of Kings. And this was a a promise, a reminder of that promise that God would come through on it. They could trust him. Then verses 9 through 10, he will guard the feet of his faithful servants, but the wicked will be silenced in the place of darkness. It is not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be broken. The Most High will thunder from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed one. God was setting apart a people in a particular place at a particular time, but he was also coming to bless the nations. He was also coming to bring ultimate victory. He was also coming to bring salvation to people like me and you. He was coming to bring promises to us so that we could trust him for our everlasting futures. God has a victory God wins. And when we say love wins, what we must mean is God wins who is love. And he will do it his way. Let's not have the assumptions of the world, which are let's adopt the practices around us and the ways of the world and attach the name Jesus or attach the name of the church. Let's do it God's way. Let's go his way. Let's trust his ways. Let's serve his ways. Let's not be like that Israel that wasn't willing to trust him and went their own way and decided that they wanted the system of the world around them. Whatever seemed appealing to them around them and I just added the name Yahweh added Israel. We are his people set apart. And I just want us to notice one thing about this song. There's so much in here. We could have taken five weeks just preaching on this one song. But I want us to notice one thing, okay? At the beginning and the end of this song, we see that uh, she talks about horns, which could seem a bit bizarre. What is she talking about here? Well, it's two things. One is that it It shows us that she believes God is a God of strength. Like a strong beast, a strong animal with its horns. It's fierce and it's tough and it's stronger than anything else. God is strong. But it is also saying, she's also alluding to, the anointing of the king. Because from the horn would be the anointing of King David. And from the line of David comes King Jesus. Salvation has come to us. All right, God gives us strength, strength to the weak. We are weak 
And we need to know that, that God is strong. And in him, we can have strength. He favors the broken. God hears our cries. And God is our only savior. Only he can save. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for this new series. Thank you, God, for the extraordinary words that we read through 1 and 2 Samuel. Lord, help it come alive to us. Help us to see these stories, not just as stories that are kind of Sunday school stories from the past and, you know, just seem nice. (laughs) But Father, help us to see that it's about much more than that. It is about who you are, about the ways that you act. It's about the ultimate things. It's about salvation that has come through the King of Kings. Lord Jesus, thank you that you've come, that you've saved us, that you have come and died in our place, been resurrected from the dead. You've been raised on high. You've taken your throne in heaven. And now we sit under your leadership. Those, uh, those of us who are, are following your ways, we're saying, God, we, we want to be people who are humble before you who are broken, who need you, and we want to rely on your strength for all your purposes. We want to go your ways. Lord, help us to see where we're just going our own way, where we're just adding worldly wisdom, tagging it on to, uh, tagging your name on to worldly wisdom. Lord, we want to go your way, your way, and no other way. Lord, help us to do that by the power of your Holy Spirit. All right, um, Johnny and Stu are going to lead us now in a time of uh, communion and worship. So um, I'll hand over to Johnny.